Psalm Singing in Scripture and History by Reg Barrow The reading of the scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the word in obedience unto God with understanding, faith, and reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, as also the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ, are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 21, Section 5 Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. James 5, verse 13 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3, verse 16 Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Ephesians 5, verse 19 This newsletter will be concerned with establishing that the only legitimate historical, confessional, and most importantly, biblical means of addressing God in public worship song is via the psalms. I will grant at the outset that this is a tall order for one short newsletter. But if all I accomplish here is to encourage some to delve further into this important issue, a measure of success will have already been attained. Having observed that much of the Reformed community is not even acquainted with their own heritage of exclusive psalmody, much less the virtually unassailable exegetical strength of this position, I hope that this encouragement to search the scriptures will fall upon hearing ears. Furthermore, many fine books have been published regarding this topic some of which are quoted herein, and their perusal will be found to be most rewarding. I am assuming throughout this newsletter that the reader is acquainted with the Presbyterian Reformed Puritan understanding of the regulative principle for worship. The Historical Testimony Psalm singing is one of the great joys of the Christian life, returning the praises of God to the Almighty in a manner which He has instituted and is pleased by, can only lead to great blessing upon those who practice it. The historical testimony reveals to us a most intriguing picture. In it our Lord shows us that at times in which he has been pleased to visit this earth with great light, he has also given the great majority of his human light bearers the grace to practice exclusive psalmody in public worship. In fact, this testimony is so clear that it is rarely contested often readily conceded even by those opposed to exclusive psalmody. Gary Crampton, in a recent article, is one example when he states that, quote, There is little question that through the centuries of church history, exclusive psalmody has been heavily endorsed by those within the Reformed community. End of quote. Quoted from the article, Psalms, Hymns, and Spiritual Songs, from the Council of Chalcedon, May 1991, page 9. The Early Church Concerning the Early Church, Bushel notes that, quote, the introduction of uninspired hymns into the worship of the Church was a gradual process, and it was not until the 4th century that the practice became widespread. End of quote. Quoted from Michael Bushel's The Songs of Zion, published by Crown and, Poven and Covenant Publications, 1980, page 122.
G.I. Williamson further points out that a, quote, second noteworthy fact is that when uninspired hymns first made their appearance, it was not among the Orthodox churches, but rather the heretical groups. If the church from the beginning had received authority from the apostles to make and use uninspired hymns, it would be expected that it would have done so, but it did not. Rather, it was among those who departed from the faith, faith that they first appeared. End of quote. Quoted from G.I. Williamson, The Singing of Psalms in the Worship of God, published by Reformed Presbyterian Church of North, Northern Ireland, pages 16 and 17. This historical testimony raises a number of interesting questions for those who claim to adhere to the regulative principle of worship and yet maintain the use of uninspired hymns in public worship. First, if the Psalter had been insufficient, why is there no command to produce new songs for worship, only commands to sing that which was already in existence? Second, if a new manual of praise was necessary, why is it that the Apostles did not write any new songs under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Third, why can't we find even one fragment or mention of the use of uninspired hymns among Orthodox Christians until they began to be written in reply to the heretical hymns that had already surfaced late in the second century? Footnote The first use of uninspired hymns was found among a heretical group called the Bardesans. Reference Williamson, Singing of Psalms, page 16. End of footnote. Fourth, why was there still strong opposition to the introduction of uninspired hymns well into the 5th century? The Synod of Laodicea, A.D. 343, and the Council of Chalcedon, A.D. 451, both opposed the introduction of uninspired hymns. In addition to this, Bushel states that, quote, As late as the 9th century, we find appeals to the earlier councils in support of a pure psalmody. End of quote. Quoted from Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 125. The Protestant Reformation As we reach the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, we find that the same clericalism which denied the Bible to the common people eventually denied them the Psalter as well and replaced congregational singing with choral productions in a tongue unknown to the vast majority of the worshippers. Quoted from Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 130. As the Reformation progressed, we encounter an almost complete return to exclusive psalmody, excluding the Lutherans who had not extended the principle of sola scriptura to their worship. Bushel states, quote, The Scottish reformer John Knox not surprisingly followed Calvin in this matter, and the Reformed Church as a whole followed their lead. This meant that at a stroke the Reformed Church cut itself loose from the entire mass of Latin hymns and from the use of hymnody in general and adopted the Psalms of the Old Testament as the sole medium of church praise. Footnote, Bushel cites Miller Patrick, Four Centuries of Scottish Psalmody, London, 1949, page 9, taken from Songs of Zion, page 131. Continuing with Bushel's quote. Henceforth, to be a Calvinist was to be a psalm singer. For some two and a half centuries, the Reformed churches as a rule sang nothing but the psalms in worship. 
The metrical Psalter was born in Geneva, where it was nurtured and cherished by all who embraced the principles of Calvinism. Quoted from Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 131 and 132. The importance that Calvin placed on psalm singing can be seen in the following account. Quote, when Calvin and Farrell were banished from Geneva, April 23, 1538, for refusal to submit to the liturgical practices which the council had taken over from Bern, they appealed their case to the synod which met at Zurich on April 29, 1538. At that time they presented a paper drawn up by Calvin containing 14 articles specifying the terms upon which they were willing to return to Geneva. They admitted that they had been too rigid and were willing to concede a number of the disputed practices, but on several other points they stood firm. They insisted on the more frequent administration of the Lord's Supper and the institution of the singing of psalms as a part of public worship. Quoted from Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 134. This was an extremely bold stand for truth, and as we know, Calvin returned to Geneva and psalm singing commenced. As he matured, Calvin insisted on and instituted the practice of the exclusive, a cappella, singing of psalms in Geneva's public worship. Taken from Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 140. Another interesting historical note concerning the development and strength of Calvin's arguments against uninspired hymns is placed in context by the following conclusion reached by Bushel. Quote, Calvin knew, as well as we ought to know, that in the last analysis, a counsel of prudence and a case of conscience amount to the same thing. In worship song, as in other things, God deserves the best that we have to offer. No pious man can in clear conscience offer up one sacrifice of praise to God when prudence dictates that another would be better. Calvin says as much in the passage which we just quoted. How one can read Calvin's conclusion that no one can sing things worthy of God unless he has received them from God himself, and yet conclude that he had no scruples of conscience against the use of human songs, is quite beyond our comprehension. These sentiments which Calvin borrows from Augustine on Psalm 31, Sermon 1, and takes as his own, are at the very heart of all arguments against the use of uninspired hymns in the religious worship of God. Calvin's own practice, his insistence on the inspired superiority of the Psalms, and his defense of the regulative principle, all point toward the unavoidable conclusion that Calvin limited himself to the Psalms and a few biblical songs or paraphrases because he thought it would have been wrong to do otherwise. The Reformed Church as a whole followed him in this belief and clung to it tenaciously for over two centuries. Modern Presbyterian worship practice has no claim to Calvin's name at this juncture. Calvin would have wept bitterly to behold the songs sung today in those churches which claimed to have followed in his footsteps. The fact remains that in practice the Genevan Reformer was as strict a psalm singer as there ever was. Quoted from Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 141. The Signature of Puritanism Psalm singing has been called the signature of Puritanism. Quoted from Michael Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 144. The English Puritans, being Calvinists and not Lutherans, 
held to the view that the only proper worship, worship song that was, was that provided of God once and for all in the book of Psalms and biblical canticles. This was Calvin's conviction and a metrical psalm before and after the sermon was usually the practice at Geneva. Quoted from Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 145. Again, Bushel points out, quote, Our Calvinistic heritage, then, is a psalm-singing heritage, and our Reformed wor- churches, to the extent that they, are, that they have chosen to forsake that heritage, are no longer Calvinistic in their patterns of worship. Quoted from Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 136. The Westminster Confession of Faith A survey of English and Scottish psalmody would not be complete without a reference to the work of the Westminster Assembly. Since the Westminster Standards still have creedal authority in some of the smaller Presbyterian bodies, which, however, are no longer committed to exclusive psalmody, it is worth pointing out here that the Westminster Divines sanction nothing but the use of psalms in the religious worship of God. Taken from Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 147. It is here that the weakness of those attempting to uphold the Westminster Confession, along with the use of uninspired hymns in worship, becomes most apparent. The writers of the Confession were well aware of the fact that the regulative principle of scriptural worship demands divine institution for all elements in the public worship service. Thus, to suppose that the writers of the Confession would sanction that which they could not find divine institution in Scripture for, and also did not include in the Confession under this section, belies a misunderstanding of the regulative principle itself. It imports the Lutheran idea that that which is not forbidden is permissible in public worship, rather than the Calvinistic conviction that only that which is instituted or prescribed by Scripture is permissible. This is a common error today even among Presbyterians, who of all people should know better. In fact, as far as we know, the idea that uninspired hymns were suitable worship song was not even discussed at the Westminster Assembly, the only disputes of any magnitude being over the practice of lining out the Psalms and over whether to use the Psalter version of Rouse or the metaphrase of Barton, taken from Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 147. Thus, I think it is fair and can be stated unequivocally that one one is of necessity in violation of both the spirit and letter of the Westminster Confession of Faith outside of the practice of exclusive psalmody regarding public worship song. Bushel summarizes our rundown of Reformed thought. Quote, It is remarkable that, in spite of the absence of any credo constraints, and in spite of the influence that must have been exerted on the Reformed Church by other communions, where, other, where uninspired hymns flourished, the practice of exclusive psalmody in the Reformed and Presbyterian churches was so uniform for two centuries after the Reformation that there exists today no undisputed evidence of ecclesiastically sanctioned hymnody in their services of worship during that period. Quoted from Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 172. Now it can readily be seen, even in this short historical presentation, why those of Reformed persuasion concede the historical argument to the exclusive psalm singers. Sola Scriptura in Worship 
Since scripture and not history, as helpful as it is, must be our final authority, it is to the scripture we will go. Some positions against exclusive psalmody can be dismissed at the outset. First, unless one is ready to institute the use of literal altars, incense, etc. in public worship, the highly symbolic and figurative nature of the book of Revelation can be no safe guide for worship here and now. Footnote, one could even do away with marriage trying to use heaven as a guide for that which takes place here and now. See Luke 20 verse 35. Clearly, the argument that runs to the book of Revelation for support of worship practices by trying to transfer what is clearly symbolic and typical into that which is literal proves too much, and if applied consistently, would and has led to ridiculous extremes. See James Glasgow, Heart and Voice, Instrumental Music in the Christian Worship Not Divinely Authorized. End of footnote. Second, it should be noted that most, if not all, arguments against exclusive psalmody are of a negative nature. These anti-psalm arguments could possibly prove the psalm singer's position incorrect, but for those holding to the regulative principle, you cannot prove the positive institution of uninspired hymns by a negative argument against exclusive psalmody. I have personally requested proof for the biblical inspiration of uninspired hymns from one prominent minister who says that he upholds the regulative principle and have yet to receive any answer. This is really the crux of the matter for those espousing uninspired hymns. Where is the biblical institution for uninspired songs in public New Testament worship? Williamson is succinct and to the point in conjunction with this insurmountable obstacle faced by those promoting such an innovation, that is, modern hymn singers. Quote, it is of no small importance that textual proof has never been demonstrated for the use of uninspired songs in worship. No one has yet found even a single scripture text to prove that God commands his church to sing other than the psalms of the Bible in worship. And it is not because men have not searched diligently. A few years ago, a committee of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church made such a search. This committee had a majority in favor of the use of uninspired hymns in worship, and yet, after an exhaustive search through scripture, requiring a number of years to complete, such proof could not be found. The committee chairman admitted that it is impossible to prove that uninspired songs are authorized in scripture. He even said that, to demand such proof before one can, in good conscience, sing uninspired songs, is to demand the impossible. Taken from the Presbyterian Guardian, Volume 17, page 73. This is a grave admission, but it is no more than the facts require. For the bare truth is that no one has found so much as a single text of Scripture commanding the use of uninspired songs in divine worship. And remember, we are not to worship God in any other way not commanded in His Word. Quoted from Williamson, Singing of Psalms, page 18. At this point, those promoting uninspired songs in worship are probably protesting that I have forgotten about Ephesians 5, verse 19 and Colossians 3:16. But such is not the case. Having come out of that tradition, these scriptures were my first protest against the position that I now hold. So let's take a look at them. A lengthy quote from G.I. Williamson is most instructive here. 
quote, The proper interpretation of scripture terms requires that we discover not what we mean by these terms when we use them today, but what the inspired writer meant when he used them. And it is one of the oddities of biblical interpretation that this rule is commonly observed with reference to the term psalms and commonly disregarded with respect to the terms hymns and songs. For the fact is that all three of these terms are used in the Bible to designate various selections contained in the Old Testament Psalter. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, familiar to the Ephesians and Colossians, the entire Psalter is entitled Psalms. In 67 of the titles within the book, the word Psalm is used. However, in six titles, the word Hymn is used rather than Psalm. And in 35, the word Song appears. Even more important, twelve titles use both psalm and song, and two have psalm and hymn. Psalm 76 is designated psalm, hymn, and song. And at the end of the first 72 psalms, we read that the hymns of David the son of Jesse are ended. Psalm 72 verse 20. In other words, there is no more reason to think that the apostle referred to psalms when he said psalms than when he said hymns and songs, for the simple reason that all three were biblical terms for psalms in the book of Psalms itself. We are in the habit of using the terms hymns and songs for those compositions that are not psalms, but Paul and the Christians at Ephesus and Colossae used these terms as the Bible uses them itself, namely as titles for the various psalms in the Old Testament Psalter. To us it may seem strange or even unnecessary that the Holy Spirit would use a variety of titles to describe his inspired compositions. But the fact is that he did so, just as the Holy Spirit speaks of his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, Deuteronomy 30 verse 16, etc., and of miracles and wonders and signs, Acts Acts 2 verse 22, so he speaks of his psalms, hymns, and songs. As commandments, statutes, and judgments are all divine laws in the language of Scripture, as miracles and wonders and signs are all supernatural works of God in the language of Scripture, so psalms, hymns, and songs are the inspired compositions of the Psalter in the language of the Scripture itself. The New Testament evidence sustains this conclusion. On the night of the Last Supper, Jesus and his disciples sang an hymn, Matthew 26, verse 30. Bible expositors admit that this was the second part of the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 115 through 118, which was always sung at the Passover, taken from New Bible Commentary, page 835. Matthew called this psalm a hymn because a psalm is a hymn in the terminology of the Bible. To the same effect is the Old Testament quotation in Hebrews 2, verse 12 in which the Greek word hymn is quoted from Psalm 22, verse 22. In this quotation from an Old Testament psalm, the word hymn is used to denote the singing of psalms because the Old Testament makes no distinction between the two. But if Scripture itself says that psalms are hymns and that hymns are psalms, why should we make any distinction between them? If we grant that the Apostle used biblical language in a biblical sense, There is no more reason to think that he spoke of uninspired hymns in these texts, Colossians 3, verse 16, Ephesians 5, 19, 
than to think that he spoke of uninspired psalms because hymns are inspired psalms in the Holy Scriptures. Quoted from Williamson, Singing of Psalms, page 10 and 11. Furthermore, to reject Mr. Williamson's explanation regarding these verses leads to some major problems. We have already seen that no evidence exists that any uninspired hymns existed during the period when these verses were written. Only the inspired psalms, that is, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, were in use as public worship song at that time, and no biblical command is found anywhere to produce additional songs above those already contained in the existing book of divine praise, the psalms. Is the regulative principle then in error? We think not. Why then were no new songs produced by the early church if these verses were understood to call for them? The apostles themselves did not produce any such songs, either inspired or uninspired, not even one that we know of, demonstrating that they did not interpret these verses as modern hymn singers do. Thus, to approach these verses by importing a modern meaning into the words, hymns, and spiritual songs not only rests on very shaky ground, leaving much room for doubt, and in no way fulfilling the requirements of regulative principle for clear biblical warrant for worship practices, but would also destroy the basis for for grammatical historical interpretation of Scripture. Footnote. Regarding grammatical historical interpretation, see Milton Terry, Biblical Hermeneutics, published by Hunt and Eaton, 1895, pages 70 and 101 to 140. End of footnote. Therefore, we can see that Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16 cannot possibly mean what those opposing the position of exclusive psalmody say they mean, because their interpretation does not fit any of the existing biblical or historical data, while the psalm singer's interpretation fits perfectly. Finally, and probably most importantly, Bushel has dug down to the root of the problem in the matter of human innovation regarding worship. Quote, Arrogance, pride, and self-assertion are at the very heart of all attempts to find a musical replacement for the Psalter. William Romaine makes some very pointed comments in this connection to which advocates of an uninspired song in worship would do well to listen. Quote, I want a name for that man who should pretend that he could make better hymns than the Holy Ghost. His collection is large enough, it wants no addition. It is perfect as its author, and not capable of any improvement. Why in such a case would any man in the world take it into his head to write hymns for the use of the church? It is just the same as if he were to write a new Bible, not only better than the old, but so much better that the old may be thrown aside. What a blasphemous attempt! And yet our hymn-mongers, inadvertently, I hope, have come very near to this blasphemy, for they shut out the psalms, introduce their own verses into the church, sing them with great delight, and as they fancy with great profit, although the whole practice be in direct opposition with the blessing of God. End of quote. We see, therefore, that the sufficiency and divine origin of the Psalter are in themselves adequate arguments for its exclusive use in worship. As we have pointed out a number of times already, the very fact that the Bible contains a book of inspired psalms immediately places worship song in the same category as the authoritative reading of the scriptures in worship. 
The former is but the musical counterpart of the latter, and as such is incompatible with and as such is incompatible with the use of uninspired hymns in worship. Quoted from Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 102. Of course there are a number of other issues left untouched and yet to be dealt with in regard to this issue. Maybe we'll get to them in a future newsletter or book. Here I have only endeavored to introduce what I consider some of the most obvious aspects of the debate over public worship song. I would strongly encourage all Christians, whether psalm singers or not, to read both G.I. Williamson's short pamphlet, The Singing of Psalms in the Worship of God, available from Stillwater's Revival Books, and Michael Bushel's full-length treatment of this subject, The Songs of Zion, also available from Stillwater's Revival Books. As stated at the beginning of this short work, God has been pleased to revive psalm singing in the context of great revivals, and if the present trends are any indication of the direction of progress in the matter, I think we all have cause for rejoicing. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L, 3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important, 
when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.